Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. And uh, let me just say before we start this morning how proud I am that you're more spiritual than all those people that laid out on Memorial Day. Amen. <laughs> and I'm thrilled that you're here today. And uh, do pray for those that are traveling. We have quite a few that are on the road traveling today. We trust that God will keep them safe and uh, and watch over them. And man, it's just a blessing to be here with you today. Uh, I want uh, I, I love going to church here. Let me just say that I love going to church here, and uh, this is where I'd want to be. This is where I'd want my family. Amen. I want my family in a place where God moves, where God works. I don't want my family in a dead church. If you want to go to a dead church, there's plenty of them around. I'll give you some names, amen, and uh, and addresses. But I, I want to go someplace where God is welcome, where God's moving and God's present, amen. I don't want to go to a place that's a show. I don't want to go to a circus, but I want to go to a place where God is moving and working. And what a blessing to get to be here today. Man, it's a privilege to get to be in the house of God. And I'm just, I'm thankful you've blessed my heart already by being here today. Exodus chapter 25, if you're a student of the Bible, you may already be familiar with the portion of Scripture we're in. But before I begin reading, let me mention to you that God has given to Moses the instructions concerning the building of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was the house of worship, the transient, the mobile house of worship before God settled the children of Israel uh, in the land of Israel and David upon the throne in Jerusalem. And Solomon, David's son, would go on to build the temple. And that would be a stationary place. But before that, God met with his people in a structure that was called the tabernacle. And it was a tent. It was a uh, transient place, a mobile place. And God gave careful instruction as to how it was to be constructed and as to all the implements and tools and furniture that was involved in that process. And this morning I want us to read just a few verses of Scripture about what is undoubtedly the centerpiece of worship in the tabernacle. It's a uh, piece of furniture that the Bible describes as the ark or the ark of the covenant or the ark of the testimony. And this was a uh, box, a, uh, a a station where God would uh, would receive sacrifice and would meet with His people. I want you to notice what the Bible says about it in verse number 10. The Bible says, They shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits, and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. Thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it. And shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. Thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. Thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. Thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. Thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one toward another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. Thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Now you may say, well, preacher, why would that mean anything to them in their day or to us in our day? Well, because verse 22, God makes this promise. He says, and there I will meet with thee. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God. Lord, you've already spoken to our hearts, moved in our midst. Lord, I have no doubt in my heart and mind that you're present in this building today. Lord, what a remarkable thing that you even today would meet with us. Lord, help us not take it for granted. Help us to not see it as merely the, the, the forming and finishing of duties and formality and, and ceremony, but Lord, as a, as a bona fide legitimate meeting of heaven and earth today, that you desire to work in our hearts and minds 
Lord, that you desire to speak to us directly to our lives about what we're going through, about what we need, and about how we can find it in you. Lord, there could be one under the sound of my voice that's lost. Certainly wouldn't be a surprise in a group this size if that were true. Lord, I just pray that you would speak directly to their heart even now. Confirm in their heart their lost condition. Lord, speak directly to them. Show them they are a sinner lost without Christ, with no hope, with no help apart from Him. But Lord, show them that they don't have to die in that condition, that there's hope in Calvary, that you've made a way, that you've paid the price. Lord, that all they have to do is quit trying to save themselves. Lord, through good works, through baptism, through church membership, through intuition, through intellect. Lord, all they have to do is recognize that none of those things can save them and come to you and confess themselves a sinner, repent of their sin, believe on what Christ did on Calvary to be born again, and that you'll save them, Lord. You'll forgive them. You'll receive them. They'll be born again into the family of God, translated from the power of darkness into the kingdom of your dear Son. Lord, I know you'll do it because you did it for me. Lord, you've done it for many that are in this room. I know you'll do it for them. I pray they'd see that today. Lord, I love you. I thank you for what you've done in my life. And I trust you for what you'll do today. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, we'll take a few moments this morning and look at each of these verses in course. But you might say, well, preacher, why are we spending time studying the dimensions and, and, and the structure and the blueprints of an ancient piece of religious furniture that sat in a tent where God would accept worship in the days of Israel's sojourn? And the key and the reason that I want us to look at these verses today is found in verse number 22. Everything you read, you may have thought, don't apply to you. But I'll tell you this, if you know yourself to be broken man, if you know yourself to be helpless and hopeless apart from God, if you sense deeply that without Him you'd be hell-bound, then surely verse 22 holds import and precious truth for you. Because God did all of this for this reason, that He would meet with His people. Verse 22 says, There, where is there? There at the ark. There upon the mercy seat. There within the tabernacle. There where I promised. There where I have instructed. He says, There I will meet with thee. Began to think about what this means for your life and mine. And particularly what it means for us sitting in this day of the church age. What we call this dispensation of grace, you know, there's no longer a tabernacle. Even if there was, God wouldn't visit it. No longer a temple. Even if there was, God wouldn't visit it. Because all that's been done away with. The book of Hebrews teaches me there's a new and better way uh, through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. You, so you say, well, preacher, what does this have to do with me? There's no tabernacle. By the way, there's no Ark of the Covenant. Amen? Indiana Jones and George Lucas lied to you. Amen? There's no Ark of the Covenant present in the world today. Uh, It becomes lost in Israel's history for a time. And the next time that you see it is in the book of Revelation. It's pictured in the very heaven of heavens. Whether that is the physical Ark that sat on the earth or rather its heavenly counterpart, I guess theologians can argue about. But I'm just telling you, we're not looking for the Ark of the Covenant today. We don't have to look for the Ark of the Covenant today. Because when I study my Bible, I learn this, that in the Old Testament, God had a meeting place with mankind. He said, if you want to find me, if you want to be reconciled unto me, if you want to know me, there is a meeting place. But I find when I read my Bible in the New Testament, likewise, God has given us a meeting place. That meeting place is not necessarily yoked to a geographic position, but rather it is a meeting place that's vested not in a position, but in a person. And so when we study the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, we find that it's what theologians call a type, or it is a part of what we would call the study of typology. What that means is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. Oftentimes it would be a person or a place or or an event that would transpire, and it would mirror or image or shadow forward some New Testament truth that when we get to the New Testament is communicated to us in clarity. You see, in the Old Testament, they had what we call picture book. They had in their form of worship all of these pictures and images that in the New Testament we have in the clear, explicit truth of God's Word 
and in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we study the ark, we're not just studying the ark of the covenant, but rather we're in it seeing a picture of God's meeting place today with mankind. Now you say, well, preacher, what is the ark a picture of? The ark was a meeting place. It was a place, let's use this word, of reconciliation. Where man, since the Garden of Eden, had been estranged from God through man's sin, he now had a meeting place where he could go to, where God would be, where he could be, and where the matter of his sin problem could be dealt with. Well, you know, the Bible tells us that even in this day we have a meeting place. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's interesting. You'll see every now and again uh, some, you know, car driving around town. It's usually electric. I don't know why that is. I'm not making any judgments. I'm just saying it usually is. And uh, a lot of times you'll see a sticker on the back. It'll say something like this. I was born right the first time. Uh, cute stickers aside, that is theologically unfounded and false. Fact of the matter is, you're not born right the first time. I'm not born right the first time. We're born lost in our sins, in our depravity, in our hopeless and helplessness. And we need to be made, hey, listen, it ain't that old creature that's going to get the job done. We need to be made a new creature in Christ Jesus. How can that happen? Well, if any man be in Christ, you've got to be in Christ to be a new creature. And once we are, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things, Paul says, are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself. How did He do this? By Jesus Christ. And hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. That means not laying to their account their sins, not charging them with their sins, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. You say, preacher, what does this have to do with the Ark of the Covenant? In the Old Testament, the Ark was the place of reconciliation. In the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ is both the place and person of reconciliation. So when I study the ark, I find in it a picture of the Savior. Not only a picture of the Savior, but by extension it is a picture of the salvation that He offers. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Colossians chapter number 1. Paul's talking about our salvation. He just gets in the glory for a little while, rejoicing in the goodness of God. And he says in verse number 12 of that chapter, "...giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light." who hath hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom, in Jesus, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Down in verse 19, he says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile, there we have that word again, to bring together, to join together, to make it peace, to meet together, by Him, to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alien... You say, who's He talking to? You. Who's He talking to, preacher? You. Is He talking to you, preacher? Yeah, He's talking to me. Amen. Uh, But He's talking to whoever's reading it. He says, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, when I look at the Ark of the Covenant, I see in it a picture of the Savior, but I also see in it a picture of salvation. And I'm happy to report to you today that though man is born lost and condemned and unrighteous and estranged and a good Bible word, alienated from God by their wicked works, they don't have to stay in that condition because God has provided, He has provisioned a meeting place where man can come to God on the terms that God has set forth and be redeemed and born again and reconciled. Thank God there's a meeting place. I went to that meeting place when I was a 10-year-old boy on December 1st, 1997, lost and undone, raised in a Bible-believing home, raised under the sound of the gospel, raised under consistent gospel preaching year after year, week after week, day after day, but still lost and undone on my way to the same devil's hell as the worst drunkard that you've ever met in your life. And I met God that day. I met Him on the cross of Calvary. I met Him at the foot of that cross. 
I met Him on the terms of grace. I met Him on the basis of His promise. And He received me and reconciled me unto Himself. So when I read about the ark, I find in it a picture of the Savior and of salvation. Now you say, well, preacher, that's interesting. But what does it teach us about those things? I want you to notice three thoughts with me this morning. And we'll be very brief. Or at least I'll tell you that. Notice number one this morning, the construction of the ark. God was meticulous in the instructions that He gave. I mean, He gave Moses blueprints for how He wanted this thing to look. And by the way, let me just say in passing, sounds like God cares an awful lot what the ark looks like and how it's perceived by the world. Kind of like it sounds like God really cares about what the Lord Jesus looks like and is presented to the world. Kind of like He is the living Word and this is the written Word. God has a real strong opinion about what His Word says and how it appears to the world. And so He gives instructions about the construction of the ark. Notice very quickly with me a few high points. Notice, number one, the measurements of it. The Bible says in verse number 10 that the measurements were two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. And a cubit and a half, the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half, the height thereof. Now you say, well, preacher, that's interesting, but my tape measure don't run in cubits, and that's probably true. A cubit, generally speaking, is about 18 inches. A Roman cubit was considered oftentimes to be, as a general rule of thumb, to be from the uh, tip of a person's fingertips uh, to their uh, elbow. And often, when they would use it in a technical sense, it rounded to about 18 inches. That sets the Ark of the Covenant approximately at 45 inches inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches deep. Oftentimes, they'll build remembrance tables uh, approximately in those same dimensions. And you say, well, preacher, that's fascinating. If I was going to build one, that helped me. But what does it have to do with me? Well, here's what I find interesting. The ark was scaled to allow man's approach and use. God compressed Himself to the span of 45 by 27 inches that He might rest on the mercy seat and meet with man. What a precious truth it is about God that He didn't say, find a way to climb up to glory with me. Find a way to expand yourself and enlarge yourself to speak on terms with me. But God in His mercy, in His pity, in His compassion, instead when He built a meeting place, He didn't build it to His scale, He built it to our scale. The Bible describes the span of God, describes the magnitude and the immenseness of Him, that He measured the universe in the span of His hands. I'll tell you this, if He had built an ark that was big enough that it would have been for His scale and size, we could have never even got close enough to appreciate that it existed. But instead, God, hey, glory, there's a truth there. Hey, if He had just kept it according to the scale and glory of His size, we could have never even realized it was there to use it. But God, in His mercy and compassion, compressed Himself down that there might be a place that man could approach to and man could enjoy the function of. Said preacher, I guess that's cool, but what does it have to? Hey, don't you see what I'm saying? Because one day God did something far greater than when He met with them at the mercy seat. One day God compressed and distilled down His glory, His essence, His majesty and magnitude to the span of a virgin's womb, uh, that He might be born among mankind and robe Himself in flesh and walk amongst us. And He didn't look down at man and say, "Come up and walk where I am," but He looked at man and said, "I'll come down and walk where you are. I'll become man. I'll wear flesh. I'll bear." burdens. I'll suffer trials and heartache and rejection and ultimately crucifixion on the cross of Calvary. Why? Because we couldn't get where He was. So He came where we were. I see the measurements of it, but then I see the materials of it. The Bible describes it as made of shittim wood and of gold overlaying. Now, this wood, we often today call it acacia wood. And uh, you say, well, preacher, uh, you know, what does it look like? I don't know. I ain't got no acacia trees. Amen. And we could go through all of the various taxonomy of this plant and probably find some beautiful illuminating truths. But I think there's a simpler thing that we can acknowledge today. This uh, ark was made of two materials. One material was considered to be low, to be earthly, to be humble, and to be common. The other considered to be rare, to be precious, to be of value beyond reckoning. God said, I want it to be wood, but I want it to be overlaid with gold. What a beautiful picture that is of the duality of the nature of the Lord Jesus after He was born of a virgin's womb. You understand He's always existed. He's always been God. And never for a moment was He not God. He's still God today. But whenever He was born of flesh and walked amongst man, He didn't cease to be God, but He began to be man. And in that moment, He wasn't just the Son of God, but He was the Son of Man. And even to this very day, hey, glory to God, the meeting place even today is still in that dual God-man. 
Bible describes how that even today he has not shed his humanity. He is still 100% God like he always was. You know he's still 100% man today. He's not present here with us, but He is seated at the right hand of the Father in a glorified, resurrected body that cannot be touched by pain or by sorrow or by corruption or by weakness. And He's still seated right there at the Father. You say, preacher, how do you know He's still man? Because the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's still seated at the right hand of the Father and He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He still can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You see, if man and God was going to have to have a meeting place, then there had to be an intermediary. Job called it a daysman betwixt them. The Bible describes him as a mediator, as an intercessor, as an advocate with the Father. He had to be able to reach up and touch the hem of the Father. He had to be able to reach down into the pit and touch the brokenness of man. And in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, you had this duality. I think the materials of it, man, they blessed my heart. And then I look at the manner of it. The Bible describes how it was to be built. And it describes three things. Notice verse number three. I want you to notice how it was crowned. The Bible says, thou shalt make it upon it a crown of gold round about. In other words, let's say it this way. The ark, mm, the ark in the endeavor of reconciling man to God was crowned with a crown around about the top of it. Yeah. We could say it this way, it was regal. Yeah. It was kingly. It was royal. You know, the Bible describes for us how in the book of Philippians chapter number 2, that through the suffering and through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore God also hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess uh, that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You say, preacher, you know, wasn't he always God? He was always God. He was always the Son. But now he's the King. And that was procured through the death of Christ on Calvary. What was he doing on the cross? He was purchasing a kingdom unto himself. And one day that kingdom will be delivered up unto the Father. But even in the ark, we have a picture of him as King of kings and of lords of Lord of lords. I see that it was that it was crowned. But notice verse 12. The Bible says this, Thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side, and two rings in the other side. Now, why did they do this? Well, the Bible describes them making staves of wood and putting those staves through those rings on either corner. And then as we preached the other night about the Kohathites, who's responsibility it was to carry the furniture and the vessels of the Holy of Holies, men, Levites, would take and they would carry the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm reminded not only of how it was crowned, I'm reminded of how it was carried. I'm reminded this, that His presence could go with them wherever they needed to go. It was not stationary, fixed to a geographic point at this Stage And in fact, we find that later on when David desires to make a house for God, God ain't really too hot about the idea of it. God says, I've always dwelt in tents and I have no need to build a house. And why would you build a house? You can't contain the heaven of heavens, can't contain me. What would be the sense? It becomes apparent to me that God sort of liked this idea of just being able to go where His people went. He liked the idea of His presence being mobile. He liked the idea, not of His people having to come and find Him, but Him just being able to go where they go and to lead them where they should go. And it reminds me that the Lord Jesus Christ desires to have a personal relationship with us. Not something that is affixed to a geographic point. Not something uh, that is sanctioned through denominational uh, credentials. But rather something uh, that is personal related to the person of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, By the way, I'm not against denomination. I'm not against labels. That's why I label the rat poison in my house. And that's why I label the milk in my house. I don't want to confuse the two. But I'm saying this is not vested in the authority of any earthly human being but rather in the authority of the personal Lord Jesus Christ. That's to say this, you can join any church, you can join every church, but if you don't know Christ, it means nothing. It means nothing. You can get baptized so many times that you're waterlogged. And I found this, we're getting ready to do church camp. Uh, listen, some of these kids you baptize, they don't even wash off the ear dirt. Why would it wash away their sins? Amen? Never in Scripture is baptism presented as being able or having the ability to wash a person's sins away. The idea of baptismal regeneration is completely alien and foreign to New Testament truth. And in fact, they've had to gut Bibles. You can go ahead and check it out if you've got an NIV sitting in your lap. They've had to gut Acts 8.37 out of it to try to support the heresy of baptismal regeneration and make it seem like the Ethiopian eunuch was saved through baptism when that's not what it says. He says, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Your NIV says, all right, 
jump on in. We'll baptize you. But your King James Bible, Philip looks at him and says, If thou believest with thine heart, thou mayest. In other words, baptism comes after the point of salvation. That doesn't have the ability. That doesn't have the means. It's not vested in church. not vested in a geographical location. It's vested in a person. If you know Him, if you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you have not the Son, you have not eternal life. I see how it was carried, but then I see what it contained. Verse number uh, 16 says this, Thou shalt put into uh, it the, the ark of the testimony, which I shall give thee. Now, that's good Old Testament fancy language for the Bible. He's describing in this, when he talks about the testimony, he's describing the tablets that God had at first given to Moses, but then Moses, like man always does, broke God's word. And so then had to go back up on the mountain and take from dictation God's Word. That, by the way, you'll hear people talk. I didn't know I was preaching on the Bible this morning. That, by the way, you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, they were only perfect in the originals. You're going to have a hard time digging up all that rock up there on Mount Sinai to try to cobble and glue together back those originals. The originals that God wrote with His finger were shattered on the ground. What Moses carried off the, uh, the, the mountain, what God called the testimony, what God allowed to be stored in the ark was a copy. It was a copy. You're going to have a hard time listening with that, that portion of Jeremiah that Jehudi took and cut out with a penknife and threw into the fire because all we've got now is a copy. And all you've got a copy. And if you're too good to read a copy, you might as well get rid of every Bible you've got because all you've got is a copy. We all right this morning? And so when I read in my Bible, I see God said this, I want to put the Scripture into it. And what a beautiful picture it is to us of the scriptural nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now by that, I don't just mean He lived in a scriptural manner, although of course He did. But what I mean is this, the ark contained the Scripture. The Scriptures were within the ark. They were indistinguishable and inseparable from one another. And if you wanted to get to the Scriptures, you had to go to the ark to get there. I'm reminded in John chapter number 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. You say, well, preacher, that's beautiful, but who's it talking about? Well, John doesn't leave us wondering. Down in verse number 14, he said, The Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We don't have to wonder who the living Word is. The living Word is the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the written Word. Praise God, we have the written Word. I said we've got the written Word. I said I'm not trying to figure out if there's a Bible. I know there's a Bible. We've got the written Word, and those two are indistinguishable in nature from one another. You want to know what Jesus thinks about something? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. That will give you God's opinion. So I see even in, in the manner of it, but then I want you to notice the mercy seat of it. The Bible describes this piece of furniture as being a box that contained things, but placed upon it was a platform upon which certain things were performed. The Bible describes it in verse 17 as a mercy seat. The Bible says, Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length of it, and a cubit and a half the breadth of it. Now, listen, before I even get into to, to the things about the mercy seat, let me describe what the mercy seat was. This was the actual meeting place. The high priest would go in once a year with shed blood and make atonement for the sins of the people. And the blood would be applied to the mercy seat. And God said that He would come down from heaven and dwell above that mercy seat and behold that mercy seat. So this is the place where the blood is applied. This is a place where God visits. This is the place where man's sins are pardoned. And here God gives provision for how it is to be designed. Notice three things or four or five or eight. Notice, number one, the dimensions of the mercy seat. And you say, well, preacher, we just talked about the dimensions of the ark. Why are we talking about the dimensions of the mercy seat? Well, notice them with me. The Bible says this. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Now, if that sounds familiar, there's a reason. Because that is, in fact, two of the dimensions that are given for the Ark of the Covenant itself. Now, here in a moment, we'll talk about what the Ark contained. But the Ark represented the, the manifest presence of God, His principles, His holiness, His statutes. The essence of who God is was considered to be pictured in what was contained in that Ark. And God said, I want to meet with mankind. But when I look from heaven, I see how holy I am. And so something must disrupt my gaze if man is to be spared and if man is to be atoned for. And so God said, here's what we'll do. We'll create a platform upon which substitutionary blood can be applied so that when I see that my holiness has been trespassed, I can likewise see that there's been blood that has been shed that has paid for that sin and trespass. And you say, well, how big was it? I like this. It was the same size as the ark. Amen. 
(laughs) Mercy covered it all. There was no sliver. There was no border. There was no peripheral upon which God would catch some glimpse of the unanswered, trespassed, righteous indignation of His essence and holiness. Nowhere. When He looked down, all He could see, He couldn't see the ark. All He could see was the mercy seat. Let me say, man, I thank God that there's enough mercy to cover it all. I'm glad Calvary covered it all. I'm glad. Hey, listen, and you know, it's funny that the charismatics have this idea. Well, God will do part of it and then you got to do your best. But can I tell you something? Hey, listen, they'll say, well, you know, you got to get baptized and you got to believe, but then you got to live right because if you mess up, you're going to lose your salvation and you got to hold fast and hold on and stick in and hold through and plow on. And they got a thousand ways of saying it. <laughs> and uh, they'd say, well, you got to do your part. Here's the problem. My part's rotten. You say, well, you just ain't trying. No, I can try. But the book of Isaiah says this, that, that my attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags before God. I, I'm not talking, hey, listen, I don't mean your worst 30 seconds. Your best 30 seconds is as filthy rags before God. Hey, if it's not of grace, and I love how Paul says it in the New Testament, if it is of grace, it is no more of works. And if it is of works, it is no more of grace. Paul didn't mince words. He didn't broaden the tent. He didn't allow for other perspectives. He said it's either by the grace of God or it's not. Those are our choices. Those are our choices, either by faith through grace, or or it's not at all. And I'm glad, hey, listen, I'm glad there's mercy to cover it all. Then I see the companions of the mercy seat. Verse number 18 says, Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. Describes how these angels would take and their wings would stretch over the mercy seat and and how that they their gaze would look inward upon the mercy seat. And you might say, well, preacher, why is that significant? Well, it's interesting. You know, the book of Hebrews tells us this about the Old Testament tabernacle. It says in Hebrews 9.23, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, talking about the sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, what's Paul telling us? He's telling us for everything there was in that tabernacle, that it was patterned after heavenly things. So there was a table of showbread in the tabernacle, but there's a table of showbread in heaven. There was a candlestick in the tabernacle, but there's a candlestick in heaven. All of these things had a a heavenly analog to them, a, a heavenly comparison to them. Everything, by the way, including the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, these angels were not just figurines and angels. They were in, in the literal sense, but they represented a heavenly counterpart. Now, think about their posture. Their whole purpose is to sit on the edge of that ark and look at the blood that's been applied. Now, why would God do this? Well, I think there's a reason in Deuteronomy chapter number 19. God gave this provision for His people in their legal proceedings. He said this, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin, if any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. In the New Testament, Christ would go on to quote and reaffirm this same principle that it had to be at the mouth of two or three witnesses. And I think these angels were present here to remind the high priest when he was going in and making sacrifice that there was a heavenly witness to the validity and authenticity of the proceedings that were taking place. In other words, it wasn't just him performing some uh, sacrament or some ritual or some rite. What was going on here was affecting what went on there. It had a real heavenly impact. It wasn't just going through the motions of of religious theater. It it was meaningful and powerful and impactful. And what He did here affected how God treated them from the heaven of heavens. It reminds me, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, 1 John, that, hey, there's three that bear witness in earth, but there's three that bear witness in heaven. And he goes on to describe the Word and the blood and the Spirit of God and how that they bear witness. And I'm glad to report, hey, listen, this ain't no fly-by-night, uh, half-constructed, cockeyed religion that we're talking this morning. There's witnesses to the truth and validity of it. I mean, listen, we, we, ain't, we, ain't, uh, we ain't practicing some kind of weird neo-pagan black magic. Uh, we're, we're, we have scriptural witness 
for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this, hey, it may not be settled down here in men's minds, but it's settled in the heaven of heavens. The authority and veracity of God's Word and the validity of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. I I see not only the companions, but I see the location of the mercy seat. The Bible says this, Thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. In other words, God says this, I will always deal with and view you through the lens of mercy. I will not gaze upon you through the lens of my wrath, but I will look at you through the lens of my mercy. There's a beautiful, by the way, New Testament illustration of this. You know, the rainbow, the the bow that God set in the heaven, and God set it there. The Sodomites didn't set it there. It's God's rainbow. It's not the Sodomites' rainbow. It's no wonder they would try to co-op that and try to use it as their mantra and banner and everything. But it's not. It's God's bow that He set in the heavens. You know, that bow that God set in the heavens after it rains was a sign that didn't exist before the flood. But God established that after the flood as a sign to mankind that He never again would destroy the world through water. What a beautiful truth that is. But you know, when you come to the New Testament, you know what you find? Uh, You find that in the New Testament, God sits upon His throne, and the Bible describes how that there is a rainbow that is around His throne. Now, when we see the bow in heaven, we see only half of it. God's saying, I'm not going to destroy you with water, but He is one day going to destroy this world with fire. But for those that have come and bowed the knee at His throne, whether He looks this way or that way, whether he looks this way or that way, no matter where he turns, he views all of them through the prism of the promise that he's made to them. That rainbow goes all the way around that throne. And it's a reminder that God has chosen judicially to deal with us on the terms of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. And then let me say a word about the function of the mercy seat. We've preached about eight sermons in the time you've been listening, so I thank you. What what was it used for? What did they do with it? Well, the Bible describes in Leviticus 16, it says this, He shall take the blood of the bullock. Now, this was done on one one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Today, they call it Yom Kippur. And, and it was the Day of Atonement in which the high priest would go and would make sacrifice for the sins of the nation. It says this, He shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. He said, Preacher, what was that meeting place all about? Well, it was a place for the blood to be applied and for the people to be pardoned. You say, Preacher, what's God interested in doing? Is he building a worldwide movement? Is he trying to build an empire and win men's hearts and minds through charitable work and social efforts and endeavors? What's God all about in this world? I'll tell you what he's all about. He's all about saving sinners from their sins. That's what the church ought to be about. That's what the gospel is about. That's what the life of believers ought to be about. Now, listen, I'm not opposed. You want to buy them a pair of shoes, God bless you. It's wonderful. You want to put a meal in their belly, I think that's a wonderful thing to do. You want to go dig a well for them, I think that's great. And all those things can be means to have an open door and avenue of the presentation of the gospel. Let me tell you something. People can go to hell with new shoes. People can go to hell with full bellies. People can go to hell well hydrated. What really matters at the end of the day is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The function of the mercy seat was not to elevate their temporal living, but rather to secure an eternal hope for them. When I read this passage, I see the construction of the ark. Now, i got a lot less sermon now than I had before, so be patient. Let me say a quick word about the communion of the ark. Verse 22, God says this, I will meet with thee. All these careful instructions, all the careful planning, all the, the meticulous craftsmanship of the men that would construct these things, all of it was meant to convey, communicate, and to allow and facilitate the ability of God to meet with man. What does that tell us? What does it teach us? We have these ideas. Secular society has presented this idea of God as an angry old man sitting up in heaven with his back hurting. That may be you, but that ain't him. Amen? <laughs> and this idea that God's sitting up in heaven just, 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 just angry and mad all the time, that He hates mankind, that He despises mankind, that He regrets mankind. But that's not the God that my Bible paints a portrait of. Instead, the, the God of the Bible, He had a great ambition 
to be reconciled to man and man reconciled unto him and for him to have a relationship. Hey, listen, what was the first thing God did with man in this world? He created man, planted a garden, stuck him in it, and then walked with him through it. God said, I love mankind. I desire to have a relationship with mankind. And when I read here about the communion of the ark, it teaches me a few things. Number one, it shows me the desire to meet. With the ark and with the mercy seat, God made clear His desire to meet with mankind. Let me make this simple statement and I'll move on this morning. If you die in your sins and go to hell, it's not because God didn't want you. He said, any that come to me, I'll in no wise cast out. If you die in your sins and go to hell, it's not because you got rejected by God, it's because you rejected God. Because He's made abundantly clear. You say, preacher, would a loving God let people die and go to hell? Well, a loving God that respects man's autonomy would allow them to, but a loving God has already literally went to the cross of Calvary and died for them so they don't have to. Preacher, what does God think about sinners? He loves them. He loves them. Calvary's proof of that. The mercy seat is proof of that. I see the desire to meet. I see the depth of the meeting that God wants. He says this, I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Commune means to speak together. God did not desire merely a passing meeting. He desires to, to commune with mankind. He wanted to know them and for them to know Him. He wanted to impart to them His presence and His promise. The idea of commune has the idea of vouchsafing or making a promise or a pledge to someone. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, I want you to come close to me. I've got some promises for you. I want you to come close to me. I've got some pardon for you. I want you to come close to me. I've got my presence for you. And He's saying, I've made a way, not because I think ill towards you, but because I have a heart for you. I see the depth of the meeting. I notice the dynamic of the meeting. Here we have them cherubims showing up again. Here's where it would, would take place. From between the two cherubims which are upon the Ark of the Testimony. Now again, remember the cherubims represented the living angels that attended God's throne in heaven. And it reminds us that this was not simply an earthly ceremony. There was a heavenly impact. It it reminds us that the the dynamic of the relationship that God desires to have with man is not one of, of ritualism or formality. It's not one of just carrying out religious motions. But it's a dynamic, living, breathing, powerful relationship that He desires to have with mankind. And then I see the design in the meeting. He says this, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. In other words, he says, here's what we're going to talk about. We learned two things about this. Think about the design in this meeting. What was God's aim? You ever been in a meeting that you could tell nobody had a plan for? (laughs) And you think, well, why why, do we call this meeting? I'm here to tell you God has a plan for meeting with mankind. What does he want to do? Well, number one, he wants to pardon them. We know that because he gave the mercy seat. Because He prescribed a means for man to know Him in forgiveness and in righteousness and in pardon. He wants to pardon them. But then when I read this passage, it reminds me, God didn't just want them to be pardoned. He wanted not only to pardon them, but to perfect them. Now, by perfect them, I don't mean to make them necessarily without ever making a mistake. But I mean He wants to develop them and mature them. Because He says, Moses, you come near and and Aaron will come near and meet with me and I will give you my commandments that I want you to speak unto the people. In other words, He's saying this, I want to teach you. I want to grow you. I want to develop you. Man, what a blessing. I see the communion of the ark and then finally, and I'm done, I want you to notice the contents of the ark. This ark, as we said, it was a box. It was a storage container. It contained certain things. And it's interesting when you study through the Old Testament, it begins with only one item within it. We read it in our text. The testimony was placed within it. The the tables of the law that the law were written on, that Moses had carved them on when he brought them back down the mountain the second time, that was what was placed in the ark of the covenant. But then we find there were two other items that were placed in the ark. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us this in verse 3 and 4. It says, After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. Now think about this. God says there are certain things that belong in this box. We could say it this way. There is a foundation for my meeting with mankind. There are terms upon which I will meet with him. And if these things are not in that box, then that box is not sufficient. You're not living in obedience. I have to have these things present there. These are the criteria or basis or foundation or terms with which God would meet with man. So what do they mean? 
Well, first off, I notice the tables of the law. And it reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ and His perfect life. You know, there was never a man lived that kept every one of God's commandments except the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I know you know about the Big Ten. They were put on posters in your Sunday school room growing up. But you know, there's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. There was never a perfect man until God became man. There was never a perfect Jew until God became man. There was never a perfect keeper of the law until God became man. And every single person, if you were to look at their life, they would have just as surely shattered those tables as Moses had in his anger. Every single one of them, James describes the law almost like a chain that has links in it where if you break one law, you might as well have broken all of them. And throughout all of mankind's long history, never had a man walked the earth that could keep intact God's law. In fact, we find when Moses carried God's law, he threw it down and shattered it. So God says, Moses, I can't trust you to keep my law. I want you to put my law within the Ark of the Covenant and I will keep my law. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, He did the exact same thing. He said what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Why was the law broken? Why was the law weak? Why was the law insufficient? Because of flesh. Your flesh and my flesh. The tables didn't have flesh. We have flesh. And laws are great except when you can't keep them. So here's what God did. He said you can't keep the law, but I'll come and keep the law for you. So it took his perfect life, not only his perfect life. The second thing, the Bible describes there being a pot of manna there. It's interesting. I, the Lord will help me. I'm going to preach on the manna tonight. But, you know, the manna, it can represent lots of things in Scripture. In the New Testament, it's described as the bread of life. And Christ made this statement in, in John chapter number 6 about the bread of life. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We could say it this way. The the, the tables represented his perfect life, but the manna represented his given life. In other words, that he took that perfect life and he shed it upon the cross of Calvary. That he took that perfect life. And by the way, the disciples were confused in John chapter number 6. Some of them got offended and went back. They said, how shall we eat of his flesh? How shall we drink of his blood? But we know how. That was picturing us by faith appropriating to ourselves the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary. It's us looking and saying, that death stands for my death. That's, that payment stands for my payment. And so the manna represented the fact not just that he would live a perfect life, but that he would lay down that perfect life. And he would pay the price for you and for I. And then the Bible describes a third item. calls it the rod that budded. Aaron's rod that budded. It's interesting when you study the story about this in the book of Numbers, there was a time when a group of men in the camp of Israel, they, they committed a sort of treason against Moses and Aaron's leadership. And, and, and they, they, they said this, why should Aaron and Moses, why should they rule over us? And why should Aaron, why should his family be the priesthood? And, and why are they allowed to do this? And we should be allowed to do this. God, by the way, went on to strike them down, cause the earth to swallow them up, Korah and his companions. But before God did that, so that the hearts and minds of the children of Israel would be settled regarding the matter of the priesthood, God set forth a miracle that would prove that Aaron was the rightful priest that God had chosen. And what he said is, all you men that want to be priests, you come and bring your staff and lay it down. And Aaron will come and bring his staff and lay it down. And in the morning we'll come back and look at them. And you remember what these staffs are, right? They're just dead sticks. They ain't never gonna, they ain't never gonna bloom. I mean, they're just dead sticks. They have no life in them. All the life has been taken from them. For them to bloom or to bud, they would have to have nascent, inherent, intrinsic life within them. A life that was not devoted or dedicated to being rooted to the ground, but a life within itself. Only that kind of rod could bud again. Next day they come, and all those rods are still rods except Aaron's. Aaron's has begun to bud. In other words, The reason Aaron's family got to be the priests is because their staff, their authority, their life had a life within it that was intrinsic, unique, proprietary, different from every other rod that was there. A life that was not dependent upon being yoked to a source of life. Hey, but a life that was a source of life unto itself. 
We could say it this way. The tables remind us of his perfect life. The manna reminds us of his given life. But the the rod that budded reminds us of his risen life. Preacher, will God meet with man? Sure he will. Upon these three things. Upon the perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is sinless. You are sinful. I am sinful. He is sinless. He did no sin, knew no sin. In Him was no sin. He was separate from sinners. He was perfect, holy, unblameable, and righteous in every way. His perfect life that then became His given life. When He laid it down on the cross of Calvary, you say, preacher, they murdered Him. Yeah, I know that's what they wanted to do. And they tried to slay the the Prince of Life and the Prince of Glory. And I understand they're accountable. And I understand they're culpable. But you also understand that had He not been willing to lay His life down, all the armies of hell, all of the empires of this world could have taken their sabers against him and it wouldn't have moved him one inch. He said, no man, no man, no man taketh my life from me. I lay it down. And then he said this, I lay it down that I might take it up again. This power have I been given to my Father. In other words, the, the man who reminded us that he gave his life for us, that he died in your place on the cross of Calvary, the same as those animals had died for the sins of those that had come to, to worship before God. The, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That's what John called him. Behold, the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. But he, he's not he's a living lamb, but he was also a slain lamb. Uh, the Bible calls him the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. John, when he saw him in the book of Revelation, said, I saw a lamb standing in the midst as it had been slain. Hey, listen. And that brings us to that third thing. He died for your sins on the cross of Calvary in your place, but he didn't stay dead. He was the lamb that was slain, but bless God, in the book of Revelations, he's standing. And he's reigning, and he's ruling, and he's powerful. Because though he was slain from the foundation of the world, he didn't stay slain. Uh, David said, Thou will not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. He did not stay dead. Death could not hold him. He got up from the grave on the third morning. And it takes that risen life. We don't talk about this a lot, but you know the, the, the apostles preach more about the resurrection than they did even about Calvary. You know why? Because lots of men died on crosses in that day, but only one got up from the dead. And that is the proof of His power. You see, if you don't believe He's risen from the dead, you have no reason to believe He can hear you. You have no reason to believe He can save you. And if you have no reason to believe He's alive, you have no meeting place with God. There's no place to go to to find forgiveness and reconciliation from your sins. But thank God, He did raise from the dead. He is alive. There is a meeting place this morning. And if you'll come to Him, God says, I'll in no wise cast you out. I'll in no wise cast you out. I thank God there's a meeting place this morning. Now, here's my question. Have you met him? Don't do any good for there to be a meeting place if you've not met him. I didn't ask if you've been to church. I know you have at least once. I asked, have you met him? I didn't ask if you'd been baptized. I asked if you've met him. I didn't ask if you read your Bible or try to be a good person or your papa was a deacon or your grandma was a pastor. Amen. I asked if you've met him. Because see, really what matters at the end of the day is none of those things. What matters is have you met him? There's a meeting place this morning. If you've never met him, you can meet him today. And here's what I want you to do. When we do this invitation in a moment, I want you to come down to the altar and let somebody introduce you to him. He'll take a Bible and show you how you can know him, how you can be saved. He'll save you today if you'll come to him. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. Here's what I want to ask. If there's someone heavy on your heart, if you're saved and you know that you're saved, but there's someone heavy on your heart that's never met him, and as I was preaching, you you, you thought of them. Their name crossed your mind. Their face flashed in in your mind's eye. And your heart is heavy because you don't believe they've ever met him. Why don't you slip out of your seat and come down and pray for him today? I like what Miss Connie's saying. Somebody prayed for me. I have no doubt I wouldn't know the Lord if people hadn't been praying for me. So why don't you come and pray for them today? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I ask it in Christ's name.